put to death until finally the DNA test revealed that they didn't commit the crime in the first place. We failed to defend them properly. Probably if they had enough money, a, a good lawyer could have proven their innocence and they never would have ended up in jail. So that's number one, is under-resourced people. Secondly is the race issue. And you'll find that for the same crimes, the same crimes, uh, African Americans are uh, convicted for a, 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 the death penalty at an extraordinary rate beyond what white people are sentenced to. So th that sentence, uh, the capital sentence is applied to African Americans at an enormous rate beyond white, Caucasians, for the same crime. So, folks, when you've got a system that is suffused with inequities, somebody needs to call a timeout and get it fixed. So I personally would biblically not be opposed to capital punishment, but I'm opposed to capital punishment unjustly, unjustly applied. And so there's a desperate issue. If you think that it's biblically warranted and necessary to have capital punishment, then you ought to all the more be sure that we clean it up so that it is, in fact, just. Because here you see that in the case of a capital offense, justice must be provided for everyone. They have asylum, and then their lives are defended when there was no malice of forethought, and that must be proven with help for the under-resourced. Thirdly, you'll notice that in verses 11 through 13, the murderers are indeed executed. So if you want to make a New Testament argument uh, for no capital punishment or you want to make a pragmatic argument for no capital punishment because of injustices in the system, we'll certainly recognize that there are sentences for murderers, there is punishment for murderers, there's a distinction made here. And you'll notice that the elders of his city hand him over, in this case, to the avenger of blood so that he may die. So in this case, the avenger of blood is allowed to take the life after the sentence is administered by the elders in the city. Now you'll notice in Hosea, real criticism of abuses of this. And the reason for all this is to purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. In other words, the Lord uh, detests the unjust taking of human blood because humans are made in the image of God and He detests taking that image and destroying it without cause. So even when we are trying to discern whether someone should be sentenced to a capital uh, sentence, there must be the protection of that life so that those who are innocent are preserved. But those who are guilty are indeed sentenced and punished because it is retributive justice. It is justice as retribution from God Himself. If we're seeking God's presence and His law as our guide, then when we are convicted under that law, it's in the presence of God and it's on His behalf. Now, we find in the Old Testament, in fact, in this chapter, I believe it is, where uh, people are uh, discouraged from committing those crimes because of the execution of justice. So there is the motive to try to discourage people from committing those same crimes, but the primary motive is to honor the name of God who put His image on us in the first place. Now, I want you to notice as a side road in verses 11 through 13, the role of the elders here. For those of you who are in churches who have elders, notice that the elders from the beginning in the Old Testament exercised judgment. They were judges. 
And when you come in the New Testament and Paul is using the word elder, in Greek that'd be presbyteros, he's referring to these same kind of functions, that elders have to make judgments in the city, in the body. So in your churches, if you have elders, those elders are to make judgments. For example, if you get two people who are, who are out of sorts with each other in the church, rather than going to a civil court and suing each other there, they should have their matters reconciled within the church. Who's going to make that judgment? Who's going to arbitrate, even if it's binding arbitration? It's the elders. And for those of you at Second Presbyterian Church, the restoration, peacemaking, judicial process ministry, all of that, it comes right out of here. The elders are the ones who are to make judgments among the, the people of God. So, fourthly, a D. Notice uh, that in civil justice, we not only protect people's lives, we protect people's livelihood. This is a major no-no in the Old Testament. That is to move a neighbor's landmark. What is the landmark? The landmark comes as a result of the division of the land when they go in. Uh, in Joshua and Judges, you'll see that they assign the land to the people so that every family and every clan, every tribe has land. And remember, we studied the law of Jubilee. Every 49 years, everyone returns to their native land. So if you sold it off and went into poverty, your children will get it back so that everyone always has equal access to the means of production, to the land. There's social justice. The elite can't get way ahead of everybody else like they have in our country. So he's saying here, if you move a neighbor's landmark, you go over in the middle of the night and move the landmark over so that you have more property he has less, you're removing his livelihood. It's a sin against the sixth commandment as well as the eighth and the ninth. So you are taking his means of supporting his life away from him. Uh, and you'll, you'll find the punishment for that was severe in the Old Testament and it was spoken against uh, in Proverbs uh, in great detail. And then fifthly, in verses 15 through 21, in the process of executing civil justice and criminal justice, we must provide for the integrity of witnesses. And I would say, as a father in a household, or as a leader in the business, or as a man who seeks to be a just judge in the, in the uh, reconciliation of disputes, keep this principle in mind. First of all, the plurality of witnesses. A single witness shall not suffice. In other words, if I'm the one accused and it's my word against one other person's word, the case is lost. Maybe I'm guilty. But what the Bible is saying is you're better off to let the guilty go free than to convict the innocent based on one liar's witness. How can you ever check the integrity of their witness? You have nothing to compare it to. However, if you have two witnesses, then I can say to, to, to Bob, uh, Bob, you leave the room. I'm going to talk to Randy. And I'll say, Randy, tell me what happened. Okay, Randy, you leave the room. Bob, you come in. Now, Bob, you tell me what happened. And I can compare these witnesses and I can see if there's some, there's some integrity to it. You can also find when you get people together, if you've ever been involved in this, somehow uh, the truth is going to come out when you have a plurality of witnesses, or at least it's more likely to come out. You're also checking the tendency toward personal revenge or personal lack of character or integrity when you have two witnesses. In other words, one's moral failures is not going to present uh, false charges against another person. You'll notice Jesus picks up on this. 
Uh, he says uh, in Matthew 18, when you're reconciling differences between each other, that before a person is convicted of having committed a wrong against you, you take a brother with you and go see him because everything must be verified by two witnesses, said Jesus. So if someone's wronged you, you take another witness there. Now the two of you hear what he has to say, that he's not going to repent. Then you can take it to the elders for judgment so that you have two people who say, yeah, I was there and here's what he said and this is what happened. So it's, it's a matter of justice. You never take one, one, somebody's word against another. So if you have three children, two of them are fighting, and the third one didn't see it, you know you have to say, kids are really sorry. Uh, both of you go to your room. Uh, <laughs> but you, you know, it's hard to make a judgment. Otherwise, you're just playing favorites. You're taking somebody's story over someone else's. Notice, secondly, in verses 16 through 21, this very interesting concept of the punishment of malicious witnesses. And I have to say, reading this, I really believe we need to take this to heart. Now, do I understand it correctly, lawyers and jurists, that if someone files a suit against you and it's a frivolous suit and you have to hire a lawyer and spend $100,000, that that person who filed the suit doesn't have to pay you for your legal uh, expenses. Uh, or if they're proven wrong, the very thing they were trying to get you in trouble for, there's no consequence for them. It seems to me that in biblical justice, if someone makes a false accusation against you and they are proven to be false, right here it says the very thing they intended to happen to you should happen back to them. I, I don't know. I'm just wondering, maybe that would cut out a lot of these frivolous lawsuits. Maybe our system is not just in that we're not requiring payment for a false accuser. We're not requiring punishment for a perjurer. People perjure themselves in court all the time and get away with it. They lose the case, but they get away with the perjury. And I think in a, uh, what, what Moses is telling us, a just system does not allow that, that we must discipline all the witnesses to be sure that if, if they're going to uh, testify, they must tell the truth, and if they don't, uh, they're going to make a payment. And it seems at least in uh, these uh, uh, personal cases of one man against another, the right thing would be, that he pays what he was uh, expecting the other person to have to pay. Now, notice at the very end of this chapter, you get what is known as the lex talionis. That would be the law of retaliation. He says, your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Some would say, boy, I'll tell you, this, this Old Testament is just blood and guts. It's pretty rough stuff. Well, let me tell you, lex talionis was not only exercised by Moses and the people of Israel. There were a few places, Law of Hammurabi and others, who had similar laws. And they were considered the most progressive peoples in the Middle East. Because the way it usually worked, if you take my foot, I'm taking both of yours. And maybe your eye as well. So revenge was not equal. Uh, when In my anger and my desire to restore my honor, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to make it hurt worse for you than it hurt for me. What the lex talionis did was actually restrain the law of revenge so that when the courts executed justice, they didn't allow personal revenge to inform their decision. It was just and proportional. Now, Jesus has something to say about this in uh, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. And he basically said that the law of love allows you as an individual not to take revenge at all. 
And as Mahatma Gandhi said, that if we, if we were to abide by the law of the lex talionis, uh, a hand for a hand, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, he said it would be a blind and toothless world. <laughs> and Jesus recognizes that. The Christians are the ones who break the vicious cycle. And you look around the world at some of these ancient animosities, like in Kosovo, ancient animosities, going back a millennium. And, of course, Americans in our historical naivete, we think we're just going to hop in there, we'll solve it, you know. These animosities are a thousand years old, and they have lex talionis. They have blood avenging go on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And that's the mentality. And we just don't understand it. Why? Because we've been reared in a Christian environment, generally speaking. But we're told, you know, there comes a time when you just need to drop an offense and let it go. And the love of Christ enables Christians to do that. But here, at the least, don't avenge more than what was done to you in the courts of law. So he's saying, your eye shall not pity. In other words, don't give a blind eye to justice. Don't excuse immorality. Don't turn your face on crime. Deal with it and execute justice in a fair way. Now, notice when we come to chapter 20 that... that, um, that the love of God and the protection of our neighbor's human life even applies to the most grisly situation of all, and that is war itself. Let's look at the text, chapter 20. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle... The priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man take her. And the officer shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. But if it makes no peace with you but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword... But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoil, you shall take as plunder for yourselves. And you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. 
that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. When you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that you should be that they should be besieged by you? Only the trees that you know are not trees for food you may destroy and cut down, that you may build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it falls. Okay. Protect life in the prosecution of warfare. We must be restrained. We can't just do whatever it takes to win the war. There's, there are rules. You know, I remember watching one of the Harrison Ford movies. I've forgotten which one it was. Maybe the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And there's this guy, uh, Egyptian. He's got a scimitar and he's swirling it around. And uh, Harrison Ford says, well, what are the rules? He says, rules? Harrison Ford pulls out a gun and shoots him. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. You know, there, uh, rules in war? Are you kidding me? Uh, but there are, actually. Now notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 9, fight God's battles unafraid. When you're in God's battle, you don't need to be afraid. David and Goliath is a good example. doesn't matter how big Goliath is, uh, God is bigger. So it's not David that we're talking about, it's God. David's not bigger than Goliath. David's not more skilled than Goliath. God is greater than Goliath, and God is on your side. Now, here's the big question. You've got to be sure it's God's battle. How do you know that the battle you're in is God's battle? Well, remember we talked about the difference between a theocracy and a democracy. Very different. Uh, Abraham Lincoln had this problem. And you remember in his second inaugural, when he was talking about, wasn't it the second inaugural when he was talking about the, the confusing uh, realities of a civil war, that both were claiming God, both were re- reading the same Bible, both were going to war in his name. And Lincoln was saying, who, who can tell? This thing's very confusing. Well, you have to, <laughs> it's very difficult. So this is the reason we have something called the just war theory. The just war it doesn't say that God's on our side and against everybody else. I mean, when we were in World War II, there, there are many German Christians uh, that, that our fathers were fighting against. How do you decide? Well, the way you decide is what is just. And there's the emergence of a just war theory that comes out of the Old Testament. And through St. Augustine in the 4th uh, and 5th centuries, we have developed what is called the Christian doctrine of just war. It's very important. If we don't have a doctrine and we don't follow our own doctrine... We're teaching the world that might is right. One of my biggest complaints about our going into Iraq is that we did not articulate doctrinally exactly what we were doing. And therefore, we set an example for the world is if you have the power to invade another nation, you can make up rules to go into it. That's the reason that all this squabbling about whether there were weapons of mass destruction or not is very important because there is a doctrine called the doctrine of imminent danger. And if a neighboring country has missiles pointed at you and men manning it and they've threatened you, then the, the modern doctrine of just war says you can have the right to go in and take out those missiles. So whether there are missiles or weapons of mass destruction is extremely important. 
Because if there are not, or we didn't have sufficient proof that there were weapons of mass destruction, what right did we have to invade a nation even though it had a wicked ruler? And those reasons are very important because we're teaching the smaller countries uh, that they can or cannot invade as well. So that's my major complaint about Iraq. It's not whether it was right or wrong. Is that nobody was really going to the State Department and the War Defense Department did not go to the effort to give us a clear articulation of a doctrine that is usable around the world for all time. Here's the just war theory. Now there are three components to the just war. There's the justice of going into war. There's the justice of what you do in the war. And there's the justice of what you do after the war. So it's before, during, and after that the just war theory addresses issues here. And first of all, jus ad bellum, which is justice to the war or into the war, that is the right cause for the war. First of all, we must be under proper authority. You say, well, what about the American War of Independence? You know, all, don't all revolutions involve military conflict without a proper authority? Isn't that the very nature of a revolution? Well, it is, and that presents a problem, but notice what our forefathers sought to do. They had the Declaration of Independence. The colonies came together and formed themselves into, into a, a union of colonies so that they could make a joint statement and have a government of sorts so that there was legitimacy. There was an organization and a government, and you need and I need to be under authority when we're fighting a war. So we are submitting to a higher authority when we go into war. It's not a personal revenge. It's not a personal decision. It's a devotion to the Lord under the civil authority. Secondly, there has to be a just cause. A just cause. There's something that needs to be corrected and that justifies the fighting of a battle. Thirdly, there needs to be a due warrant. Basically what you're saying here, does this evil justify killing people? Because I'm going into war, I'm going to kill people. So is the evil that's going on there justify the killing of the lives that are likely to take place in the war? Fourthly, are there good intentions? Am I just trying to get hold of the oil in the area? Am I driven by my own personal economics? Or am I seeking to bring peace and justice to that region? That has to be asked very seriously when you're talking about the Middle East or any other part of the world depending upon what the circumstances are. Fifthly, is this my last resort? In other words, is there some other way to solve this dispute? So when our State Department says we have exhausted all possibilities, that's a very important thing to say because you must exhaust all possibilities. This must be the last resort. You must give opportunity to your enemy to resolve this thing in any other way and you must give them plenty of time to do so even if the time allows them to arm themselves to some degree. I mean, these are very difficult moral decisions, and they will come at the risk of your life and the lives of your countrymen when you implement them. And the only way we know whether you have any character is when it comes under pressure and trial and when there's a price to be paid for it. Is it the last resort? Sixthly, I think it is, proportionality. In other words, will my methods create more evil than is being punished? Is the evil that's there likely to be reduced by what my actions are going to do? Or am I only going to increase the evil that's there by what's left behind me? Proportionality. Is warfare a proportional response to the evil that we're dealing with? 
For example, you could take the situation in Somalia where these ships are going along the sea and they're just being, they're being kidnapped under uh, heavy arms. Well, the Bush Doctrine says that if a terrorist is hosted by your country, your country is now an enemy. That was a, that was a big move. That was a big addition to the just war theory, and I don't think the country even knew what happened when George Bush the Younger gave the Bush Doctrine. But he basically said, if you harbor a terrorist, you'll be treated the same way as a terrorist. So what he's basically saying is that we now have the right to invade Somalia. The question is, on this issue of proportionality, would you create more evil by invading Somalia than you have now? And I would say probably the Defense Department has a judge that it would create more evil to try to invade a country like that than to try to deal with it as we are now, which is not very well. Seventhly, is there a prob probability of success? In other words, you never take men into warfare. Uh, well, you rarely would take men into warfare when you think that you're likely to lose. Not a battle. Sometimes you have to fight a battle to, to the death and you believe you're going to die. I'm talking about a war. You don't begin a war with an enemy that you think you're going to lose because that creates more evil, death, and destruction than you had in the first place. So there has to be a probability of success. Now, in the American Revolution, there was very little probability of success. It had never been done in the history of the world. It was completely unprecedented. So they probably violated that one, but they felt they had other causes. Now, the alternative theories, you can see where the just war fits in on the, this scale. Militarism is basically that military action is always good and that's the way to solve every problem. Terrorism or revolution is that, uh, you know, I won't come under proper authority. I'll just shoot off or fire off without any organization, without taking responsibility and so on. Realism is the doctrine that it is unrealistic to expect ethical behavior in warfare. That's, real, that's the doctrine of realism. And basically what comes out of realism uh, in the early 19th century uh, by Karl von uh, Clausewitz was what is known as total war. That is, when you're at war, you just go all out. The destruction of civilians, the destruction of civilian property, just leveling places. And that, of course, is where Sherman got his tactics and Grant got his tactics from Clausewitz, von Clausewitz. And so you, you go down and just burn houses, burn cities, take out civilians, leave them homeless. It's total war. Now, it works in the sense of winning war. What, where it doesn't work is in honoring God, and where it doesn't work is in the taste left in the mouth of your enemy after the war, as we can see. So that is realism. It is unrealistic to expect any ethics in warfare. And of course, uh, you know, the bombing of Dresden, Germany, during World War II, that comes into question, doesn't it? The dropping of the atomic bomb in Japan comes into question, doesn't it? Where you're taking civilian lives in order to end a war. And I know there are many arguments on either side, but that has to come into question. And then, of course, you see self-defense. Uh, you get this with Israel, don't you? Every time the Palestinians strike, you've got to strike back. Sometimes a little harder than they struck you. It's, all, it's just immediate reaction like this. That would be the self-defense theory. And then you have just war that takes it out of personal vengeance, where you're not always quid pro quo, but you're looking for God's justice. And then you have nonviolent resistance, uh, Muhammad Gandhi style, uh, Martin Luther King style, and then pacifism, pure pacifism, where there would be no resistance, 
They would be trusting in the Lord through prayer and invisible means of grace, spiritual warfare, but never any uh, physical resistance. Of course, that would be very difficult to justify, therefore, a, 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 a police department, for example, if you're a true pacifist. And I'm certainly not one. I believe in sin, actually. Okay, secondly, when you look at verses 1b through 4, he says, do not be afraid. When you go into a just war, or when you're fighting spiritual warfare, and you're doing the Lord's work, even though the odds look greatly against you, gentlemen, we must not be afraid. And he reminds them, I'm the one who delivered you out of Egypt. And what he means is this. I'm the one who put the Egyptians under the Red Sea, and I caused you to go through it. Don't forget it. The Egyptians had the chariots. The Egyptians had the horses. The Egyptians had the iron uh, weapons. You didn't have any of that, and I took care of you. So let's just keep that before you all your life. Don't forget it. And I would say to you, don't forget the cross. You've got the devil and all of his minions that are uh, set up against you who are uh, infinitely larger than you are, more powerful than you are. But remember the cross. What happened at the cross? One Jewish man died. He was the God-man, and he defeated all of your enemies. He did it for you. Don't forget the cross. Don't forget the Red Sea, that when you're doing the Lord's work, you need not fear. Verses 5 through 8 teaches this. You can excuse any who have special burdens in war. Now, notice he says, anybody build a new house? Anybody plant a vineyard? Anybody betrothed to a wife? Just go on back. And why? Because we'll see in the curses later on in Deuteronomy that one of the curses is that men who plant a new vineyard, men who build a new house, will never be able to enjoy it under the curse of God. And we never want people to go into warfare who have to face, or their children have to face, the image that they were cursed by God. So he says, you all just go on back. You just enjoy. Because we don't have to have everybody. We're trusting in the Lord. You know, Gideon got it down from 32,000 people to 300 people uh, because the Lord didn't need all those people. And are you fearful and faint-hearted? Just go on home because it's contagious. We'd rather have fewer men who are not afraid. Fourthly, we appoint leaders. Notice that God is in charge of the war, but He puts men in charge as well under Him. So this God's being in charge of your life and fighting your battles for you doesn't mean you don't do anything. Uh, every important thing in the Bible involved God raising up leaders. Now, the second division of this chapter has to do with fighting the battle justly. And I want to make some points here for our sakes in just war. First of all, verses 10 and 11, you notice that we are to negotiate for peace. There's prior negotiation. There's always preference for peace over warfare. Uh, look, my, my, my son's a Marine officer. Those guys, they, they fight. That's what they do. They're fighters. In fact, if you bring them home and they sit around too long, they just start fighting each other. I mean, they're just fighting all the time. So you, you can't go into a battle just because you love to fight. Uh, no, you go into a battle because you have exhausted all possibilities for peace through peace-loving men who are negotiating. You see that right there in the biblical text. Verses 12 through 15 teach us that we protect non-combatants. And you'll notice that he mentions the women and the little ones. And all you have to do is look at the way that war is prosecuted right now. When my son was in, Mar in the Marja invasion, uh, he, he was the forward air controller calling in all of the air support for the, the Bravo company that was going in the middle of Marja. And uh, he, he was a captain, and his customer was the 
commanding officer of the company, the, ca- the captain, a fellow captain. And so this, the, the captain was making all the strategic decisions. Uh, my son's job was to be sure that he had the air support he needed. And there were hundreds of, of episodes of air support uh, during that. But often, my son, uh, there was a, there was, HBO did a little uh, movie of it, and uh, on one case, uh, my son was just sitting there with his head on his hands, just going like this. Just, he, if he could have court-martialed, he would have court-martialed somebody because he couldn't get the air support that was needed to protect his own fellow Marines. And the reason he couldn't, they couldn't prove there were no civilians in the building. And headquarters wouldn't allow the bombs to be dropped. And, and Captain Sparks had to take his men into, the, into enemy fire without the air support they actually needed because headquarters was saying, you can't drop a bomb because we, you can't prove there are no civilians there. That's called just war theory. On the other hand, the enemy will walk across a field surrounded by women and children because he knows you won't shoot. That's called unjust war. You can see it today. Nations that are shaped by the gospel and by protecting life, even in warfare, and that we must be men of principle. You see it today in living color. It's amazing to me how people then will say, no, religions are all basically the same. They are not the same. And they make all the difference in the world. Don't tell me they're the same. One is highly destructive, enormously demeaning to women and children. And the other risks our own lives for the protection of our enemy's children. Don't tell me it doesn't make any difference. And in Egypt, don't you find it interesting that now the women are starting to rise up in Egypt in all this disarray and the facts are coming out that the women have an illiteracy rate twice that of men and women have been unemployed three times as much as men and there is no woman involved in developing the new constitution for Egypt. Why? Because for centuries, religiously, they have been demeaned in warfare and in non-warfare. Protect non-combatants. Give your life for it. Thirdly, Execute God's justice. This is called a holy war. We've talked about it before. I refer you to that that discussion. You can look at the introduction to the book of Joshua on page 390 in your Bibles, your study Bibles, and you'll get a fair description of just war there. It's just war is only because, in this case, God is sovereign over a theocracy. He is exercising His judgment against wicked people. And he has judged them so that there will not be a breath out of them. They have committed evil for 400 years and their immorality has been piled up and now God's judgment is coming and is using Israel to do it. Then notice lastly that we protect the environment. You shall not destroy its trees. You know there was a lot of uproar about during the Vietnam War about using Agent Orange and destroying the, the, the wooded areas in, in Vietnam and all the destruction that caused. Well, of course the reason for it was People were hiding out in the jungles. So we wanted to remove the jungle, but you have to be very careful. When you destroy someone's environment so that they don't have livelihood, it's like, lo- it's like moving their landmark. It's like taking away their livelihood after the war. You have to be very careful to preserve historical uh, buildings and uh, religious sites and the environment. And you notice it right here in the Old Testament, gentlemen, it's right here. Protect the fruit trees. You say, what no difference, what difference does a fruit tree make when I'm trying to fight a battle? It makes all the difference in the world because you believe in God's justice and you're leaving fruit for the next generations 
after the war is over. And you've got that in mind because you're a Christian man. And you don't fight battle like von Clausewitz fights it. You fight it as God would in His justice. Now, lastly, notice these, these two aspects of just war. Jus in bello, that is right conduct in war. You always focus on peace. You discriminate against combatants and non-combatants. That's what discrimination is. And you show restraint and mercy. There's, there's not been a better picture of Americans fighting war in this past decade than when the battles in Iraq were taking place and our soldiers under fire were carrying their enemies on their shoulders, over their shoulders, to get them to the infirmary to save their lives. I don't think I've seen a more beautiful picture than that in my lifetime in fighting war. It's what, what is it? It's the just war theory in battle. It's right conduct in battle. You're not trying to kill people. You're trying to execute justice. And when a person is taken out of warfare, he's disabled, you now protect his life. You don't just take him over behind the barn and shoot his brains out. Notice the just postbellum, lastly, that you must have a right conclusion to war. And that is there must be a just termination. That is, the issues that brought you to war in the first place, to the best of your ability, must be dealt with. And there are cases where that did not happen. Winston Churchill complained about uh, the Treaty of Versailles after World War I because it did not deal with the issues. And after the treaty, the Germans were continually violating it. What did it lead to? World War II because there was not a proper termination to the first war. So be sure you get the job done. Secondly, public terms of peace so that it's announced to everybody, the word goes out, and you declare peace, and then you you uh, institute and you discipline peace. Thirdly, justice applied to war criminals. And I know there's a problem here because you can say, well, their culture sees things differently than we see culture. Things. Well, I'm telling you, all you can do is go back. There is a God. And there are laws of love that apply even in warfare. And when people have sent people to the uh, chambers to be burned, well, I think all of us can figure that one out. And so we must apply justice even the death penalty, to war criminals. Fourthly, there must be reconstruction and reparations. And after World War II, of course, you could see in Japan and Germany and all around the world how we divested ourselves to take care of those who belonged to nations that we had fought and defeated. And that's coming from a Christian doctrine of just war. And in Iraq and Afghanistan, you see billions of dollars being spent not on armaments, but on school buildings and government buildings and trying to train local police forces and all the rest. This is an aspect of U.S. post bellum. So you can see war is very intricate, very expensive, and very complex morally, and therefore we should do it very rarely. Now the issue to apply to ourselves, first of all, your political views, your views on these questions as they apply to our country. But secondly, how does this apply to your relationships where you have conflict? I'd love for you to be thinking about that. If we look at just war theory or criminal justice theory, how does that apply to your case of being in dispute in business or in personal issues in the church or in your families? How do you bring justice? What are some principles here that you can apply to your own lives? Time's up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us laws in the worst of human conditions when we kill each other or decide to begin killing each other. You have not left us. You are with us, and you still rule over us. 
and demand of us that we walk with you. Help us in our most difficult circumstances and in our worst moments to look to you for guidance and to find it because we really want it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.